Hello, my name's George Lawton. I'm a journalist for VentureBeat. I write about big data. And I'm here today with Kristen Luck and Rob Francis. And we're going to talk about the evolution of ethics in the world of big data. And you know, we're going to explore how these various privacy regulations like CCPA and uh, GDPR here in Europe are affecting data, uh, how bias is showing up, and, and what uh, people that work with data can do to be good people, be good to their employees, be good to their consumers. Uh, so, Kristen, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing in this area. Yeah, so um, I've been a sort of lifelong researcher uh, and marketing tech entrepreneur. So in addition to running my management consulting practice and doing some investment banking now, I also head up uh, SMR, which is the big uh, global association that represents the insights and analytics industry. And so we, as you can imagine, spend an incredible amount of time uh, consulting and advising globally on data ethics, privacy, the use of you know PII, uh, and really monitoring that changing landscape of what's going on with regards to data privacy, um, including the right to poll in many regions um, around the world. Yeah. Thank you, and Rob. Yeah, for us, you know, everything we do, customers at the heart of it. So we have sort of this diagram that we use of booking where we show our just our, our landing page. And you can see where data or machine learning is doing something in, in nearly every aspect of what you touch. And so the thing that we really emphasize is you know, to do that, it requires a high degree of trust from our customers. So we kind of focus on that as the main thing we can be doing. So that's everything from making sure we have great controls from the cyber perspective, uh, that we are constantly scanning for any data that's in a place it shouldn't be. Um, so from a big data perspective, those things are pretty standard issue. Where it gets really interesting for us is in the machine learning area, where we're really partnering with the EU Tech Alliance. We joined the European uh, Parliament also in a workshop on AI ethics, where we think you know, fairness and transparency in machine learning models are increasingly important. So that's an area that we're continuing to focus in heavily. Now, what, what are some of the ways that fairness and transparency show up at a practical level? Well, the way I sometimes think about it is that, you know, it's mysterious to people. How did that decision get made? You know, we make over 10 billion predictions a day in our machine learning environment at Booking.com. So it's very easy for a human to make a decision, and sometimes humans are not right, but you might understand how that decision got reached. Uh, when it comes to machine learning, when you have all of these different, you know, sets of data that are being used to drive a decision, it, it's, it might be mysterious to you in terms of how did that decision get made. So I think that's one thing we have to do well is the transparency around the decision that gets made in the first place. Um, so that, that's, I think, probably the biggest area we have to focus on it because bias creeps into models. And it can feel like it was with bad intention. And it isn't always because there are just so many inputs and there's so many opportunities and rich things you can do but the slightest deviation in that can make for confusion of, well, wait a minute, that decision got made here, but this one here, why? I don't understand. So that's another thing we've done. We've instituted a program that we call B.Fair around the sensitivity of the output of our model. So that's another thing we, we try to do is to 
you know, keep, keep a, a view on the variance from what we think our prediction should be within range. Yeah. Now, how I, do you... I, I think too though, George, you know, it's like you talked about transparency and fairness. I think, and we talked a little bit about this backstage, is that oftentimes this idea of fairness can be subjective. Uh, and so what might be seem fair in some cases might not, you know, to one person might not be to another. And so that's where we kind of start running to challenges. I think a lot of times with the ethical use of data is like, you know, what's fair, what's, um, what's expected versus for one person versus for another, yeah. Well, when we, when we start talking about data and big data, what are some of the top considerations when we, how do we make data good? Like as opposed to like being misused or mistreated or uh, you know outside of the purview of a person's you know best interest. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think there's a uh, you know I think there's a, a, a lot of emphasis on informed consent uh, and how do we how do we how do we really provide transparency around consent policies? I think there's a, a battle between oftentimes the legal departments and then you know, customer experience, which is we want people to understand what they're consenting to, but we also want to be protected legally as a, as a company. I think it, it also translates to the use of PII. And I think there's a lot of sensitivity around that because of you know, some bad players. You know, if you look at things like data, data farms or like folks that are, are really using very, very granular, uh, personally identifiable information to market products or services to people, that can become really intrusive, uh, particularly if someone hasn't given consent for that. So I think it's a, you know there's many layers to the to the data ethics conversation. Yeah, I mean I think good is sort of is it helpful or not? Is it meaningful to right. me? So you know one of the things that our customers really don't like is if we send them an email saying, hey, you should take a trip to Sweden when they're currently on a trip they just booked with us in Tokyo. That <laughs> makes us look not smart, but. Worse is what they don't, really don't like is if we were to take that data and you know, use it for some other commercial use, sell that data, and we don't do that. So that's, to me, it's sort of, it's, it's got to be meaningful. It's got to be you know, bringing a great experience in some way to be good. Now, how do you do that at an organizational level? Like where, you, where you're you know, having the conversations with the marketing, the tech, the legal people, to, to make sure that everyone's on the same page and you're creating systems for enforcing good behavior rather than just saying, oh yeah, we're going to do the right thing. Yeah, some things are just straight up in our culture. So you know, we don't sell our data to third parties, full stop. We just don't. So that's very easy organizationally to do. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how do you make sure the marketing department isn't sending an email to someone that just contacted us from customer care, those are the hard parts. Uh, so, you know, the way I think about it is I try to centralize just enough. You yeah. know, I, I want to empower teams to be able to make use of all the things that are emerging because I think big data and machine learning is just ripe with innovation going on right now. And I don't want to slow that, but I do want to make sure at least in terms of where I store PII, you know, where I must have controls, then those are things where I will actually organizationally align around things like that. Mm. I, think, I think to your point, if it's part of the ethos of the organization and everyone understands the corporate position on it, then it becomes easier for everyone to adopt and like adhere to that, yeah. adhere to those rules, yeah. How is the nature of consent changing? You know, like, you know, it used to be you, you would just go to sites and now with GDPR you've got to click agree and there's 15 things and you're not sure 
what they mean today or what they might mean a year from now when they decide to do something different? Like, what, how is like, the idea of consent showing up in, in the way you gather data and connect with consumers in, a, in an honorable way? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, with the advent of GDPR and CCPA, that you know, the uh, you know, the 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 need to collect permission and to and to do informed consent has sort of been standardized in many cases. I mean, clearly not all over the U.S. You know, when I'm in the U.S., you know, I go to websites; they don't ask me anything. I'm just on the website. The minute I get to Europe, every single time I use Google, I'm getting I'm getting a form. Am I giving consent? Am I giving consent? Um, and a lot of those policies are, are really long and, and challenging to understand. Uh, and so I think there ha I, I have seen some movement in terms of people trying to simplify. And I think the key, the key is to make, to make consumers or the visitors to your sites understand the benefit that they're getting from agreeing to, to, those, uh, to that level of consent. What, what are you going to do with that data? How are you improving their experience? Uh, you know, what, what's the benefit to them? And I, I don't think, I, I think too many times we just focus on the legal part of it without taking the time to understand or to explain how, how people are really going to benefit. And we talked yeah. a little bit about this backstage about how you use data, create more customized experiences which benefit people. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the, there's certainly a higher degree of awareness from people in terms of, oh, this, you know, you know the saying of, you know, if you're the product, if you're not paying for the product, then you're the product. I think there's a much higher right. degree of awareness from that, from just the average person on the internet today. So that certainly has created a higher degree of skepticism. Yeah. So, which I think ultimately, you know, it's a slow turning wheel, but I think that is the sort of mindset that is pushed towards, you know, the, the world of cookies will go away over time. And that's, that's a reflection of that sort of people saying, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want this level of, uh, of information being shared. Um, so it's, it's a slow turning wheel, but it is, it's, it's going in a good direction. This, this whole idea of, of personally identifiable information. I mean, there used to be your social security number, your credit card, uh, your date of birth. Yeah. But now it, it's almost like these de-anonymization sort of technologies are able to bring back your identity from your website, your browser configurations. I mean, even the, you know, you've got these companies trying to recreate the cookie after, at yeah. the end of the death of the cookie. Yeah. How do you think the, the nature of PII is changing and, and what does that mean from an ethical perspective? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, PII is PII. Yeah. So the nature <laughs> of that isn't changing. It's how do you, you know, protect yourself from it? And I, I think that is uh, evolving. I don't have a great answer for you in terms of, you know, that, that, that's a bit of an arms race right now in terms yeah. of, you know, what's available out there for people to go gather and scrape information and deduce and infer you know, who someone is, you know, is, is, I think that's one of the challenges we have in the space of uh, ethics and privacy in, in Yeah, I, I think too, like if you, if you, you know, there's, as we kind of move back from Google cookies and, and there is more focus on, well, how are we going to get that type of information so that we can profile folks, then you do have the rise of uh, uh, audience segmentation firms like Distillery, the Trade Ducks, which are you know kind of aggregating PII and creating and using segmentation methods to to categorize people so that 
although you might not have the individual user data, based on their demographic and psychographic, you can sort of bucket them and then target on that. Uh, and so those solutions are certainly on the rise and I expect to see more of them. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, the PI issues is, is really delicate, and you've got a few, yeah. again, a few bad actors, like folks that run Data Farms. There's a great kind of expose that John Oliver ran on Data Farms a couple, I don't know, maybe six months ago. If you haven't seen that segment, look it up on YouTube, because it's fascinating. But, you know, when we're targeting people, you know, for like some traumatic event that's happened in their life, or um, some behavior that they practice online that they might not be so proud of, then it becomes very, very personal. Um, and it's just, again, it's a few bad actors that can kind of spoil it for everyone else. Yeah, I, I think we, we still have this sort of digital identity challenge. You know, yeah. there's no authoritative repository for digital identity. And so, you know, it, it creates challenges in our social media space just as much as it does in the marketing space in terms of, yeah. you know, ability to create Twitter accounts that are fake, the ability to, have multiple personalities just as an individual showing up at work, showing up socially. That's an unsolved problem that I think we're going to have to tackle. Yeah. Do you think like these privacy enhancing technologies are, are going to play a role in all this? You know, like you hear about these ways of anonymizing your data so that, that people can bring it together to say do medical research without sharing your actual data with other people. Do you think there's a role for that in, in the sort of frontline you know, research anytime soon, or is that? Is I that think there's a role for it. I, I think there's also some role for uh, governments to also be involved, and so this creates sort of like skepticism of you know, concerns around privacy of how does that happen in the first place, but something has to happen here, and so I do think this te that technology is going to play a, play a part in it. I think, I think it goes back to data ownership and how much ownership people want to have over their own data. I mean, George, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, there are companies that are, you know, creating these data pods or um, creating profiles where you can go and log in online and you can update that. You can decide what you want to share and what you don't want to share and with what types of companies you're comfortable sharing that data with. Uh, and I think some, some people are aggressive about adopting those methods personally. Uh, and, and others are like, ah, I can't be bothered, it's not important to me. And so I think, again, there's this spectrum of what's important to me from a privacy perspective might not be right. important to you. I think it's, you know, again, it's subjective and I think corporations have to, have to really be good actors and, and realize like, hey, there is a, you know, sort of a, a minimum requirement for the privacy that, that we'll respect with people and then, you know, there are obviously, uh, some folks, again, that are comfortable sharing more and some that want to share less. Mm. With the death of the cookie, you talked about <laughs> these segmentation companies. Yeah. So, so more and more uh, enterprises are going to have to work with something to help you know, target their marketing dollars more efficiently. What are the kinds of conversations that uh, you know, companies need to have both within their own organizations but with these you know, these third-party providers of these new kind of segmentation tools yeah. to behave ethically? I, I mean, I think it, it really depends on, on your corporate infrastructure. If you're someone like Booking and you've got a big database of users, you, you probably don't need to use those audience segmentation tools for the most part because you have an understanding of, of your community and your, your users. And, uh, you know, obviously if you're trying to bring in new users, yeah, you might want to use 
an external company for profiling or trying to figure out where your next you know move might be from a from a growth perspective. But you know, there's many companies, you know, Google being one of them, that doesn't that doesn't need to use those solutions. They have enough of that data. It's the companies that are sort of unprepared for it that you know aren't you know direct to consumer, don't have a web interface naturally don't have the opportunity to build a walled garden in advance that I think are, are going to have to do more of those partnerships and look at alternative data sources. Yeah, yeah I leave that one to Kristen. <laughs> I don't think about that space too much, to be honest, <laughs> for the reason you said. What, what's one thing that people that are watching this can take back to their offices to sort of improve the conversations and, and their whole stance on ethics as it, as it comes to big data? Yeah. I mean, I think from my perspective, it's, it's really about, you know, anytime you're implementing a new policy, a product, or a service, looking at the types of data that you're collecting and, you know, deciding, like, am I impinging on people's personal rights as it, as it relates to PII, um, or am I a, a good actor and I'm, I'm, I'm protecting that, that user? And so I think it really has to come from this, this place of like really caring about people's privacy and doing everything you can to protect it. And that has to, again, be part of, I think, the ethos of the company. Yeah. I would say hygiene. Honestly, yeah. just the pure discipline to really stay on top of where you think the data is. Is that where it is? You know, has it crept somewhere else? You know, with the proliferation of tools and what's possible, it can get away from you if you don't pay attention to it. So hygiene is one of the best things you can do just operationally to continuously be validating that your data is where you think it is. Well, thank you, Kristen, Rob. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, George.